Welcome to the Learning and Development Podcast. I'm David James, and each week I chat with guests about what lights them up in the world of people development. This week, I'm speaking with Gemma Critchley, who is Head of Technology and Innovation for Learning at Aviva. In this episode, we discuss digital, learning innovation, and Gemma's experience of both. It's a fascinating conversation, and I enjoyed it immensely. So let's get into it. Gemma, welcome to the Learning and Development Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, Now, it's easy to talk about learning innovation. Loads of people are doing it, sharing ideas about it and having conversations about it. But how do we move past the ideas and actually start creating stuff that is helpful and meaningful? Gemma, that's the introduction to a post you published on your blog titled Nine Tips to Help with Learning Innovation. In a nutshell, and a tough for you to even start with, how do we start creating stuff that's helpful and meaningful? Good question. And uh, that, that blog post was written, I think, about four four years ago now. So it's quite an old post, but mm. um, I've got it pinned to the top of my Twitter feed. And there's a reason for that. And that's because it's still relevant mm. today. So the stuff that I put in there when I was sort of first finding my way in the world of learning innovation, I still go back to it now. Um, and I think in terms of creating stuff that's helpful and meaningful... For me, it's all about people. Mm. We sometimes forget that. I think we're very often we're part of a people function, but we forget that there's a human in human resources and we don't often go spend time with people. Um, So for me, like the number one thing out of that post, and there are nine different areas to it, the number one thing is that we need to design stuff with and for people. Mm. So really focus on what they care about, what they're struggling with, what their problems are and then help stuff, uh, create stuff that helps them with that. Now, what you're saying, I mean, the listener's going to be nodding and, and thinking, well, yeah, of course, that's obvious. But it's only obvious, I suppose, when you when you compare that to what's going on more generally. So in your opinion, what's wrong with the way things are and have been for some time in learning and development? So any, anyone who knows me will know that I'm I'm all about the positivity. So <laughs> I'm super about like, let's not focus on what's wrong. Let's mm-hmm. focus on what could be better. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really important to think about when we think about innovation, which mm. in itself can be a bit of a scary word if you have been working in a traditional L&D space. So if you're a face-to-face trainer, for example, or you're de- delivering or developing um, formal learning programs. Mm. Um, I think for me, it's about looking at, what's happening in our organizations that's that's the thing that's not happening at the minute so mm. i think learning and development can exist in a bubble yeah and we very often listen to our subject matter experts more than we listen to the people that are actually doing the work mm. so one example um and i actually saw on twitter this morning kathy moore retweeted an archive blog post of hers around um raising awareness mm. as, as she titles it that an SME or a subject matter expert would come come over and say, well, we need to raise awareness of this new policy in our organisation. Um, and I think the number one thing that I see that's wrong in learning today is that not enough people ask why. Yeah. So not enough people will say, why do we need to raise awareness? How, how can we define that problem in terms of business outcomes? How mm. can we really understand what needs to change? Um, and that's what I don't see a great deal of. Very often we can be seen as order takers in L&D, mm. I think. And that's that's really harmful. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I, I, a couple of things um, struck me when you were uh, answering there. The first one was, yes, that's order taking. But what it looks like 
is business alignment. So, so it's easy to confuse that that a senior stakeholder, a subject matter expert who comes with a request about what should be uh, an, an intervention for another group of people, usually below them, it seems like business alignment, but it's not. Without rigorous um, valid testing and validation, without data and evidence, that is just order taking. And um, so... So I so yes I I recognise that I've recognised that throughout my career as well. I remember in uh, in one organisation, um, well I say it's Disney because I was going to use the term I was going to hide it. Then I thought, but anybody who knows anything <laughs> about me would have realised it was been during my Disney days. Somebody came, senior stakeholder said, "What are we doing on work life integration?" You know, you go, we're not doing anything. Like, I mean, tell me what that is, and and I'll and I'll look into it. So. So I got I got the article, I think it was from Fast Company, had a bit of a read, and then you're kind of thinking, right, okay, how do we incorporate this into what we're doing? But not realizing that's just order taking. Yeah. There's no there's no rigorous challenge there. There's no there's no second question, which was, what do you mean and how have you seen that? You know, as a way of just trying to get any kind of evidence. Going back to your yeah. you know, with the subject matter experts, when when there's a when there's a, almost like a broad declaration of um wide scale activity when really it's just minimal observation that, yep. that they are basing this on and we see that as some kind of business alignment i think you've got a great point is that yeah. is that what you meant absolutely and i i think for me it's it's about being brave to challenge that so mm. if someone comes to you and goes but we need people to know this this is a organizational imperative mm. just just being curious and asking why it yeah. doesn't have to be confrontational it can be conversational and you're just trying to get to the root of what what is the problem mm. why do people need to know about that policy what behaviour is happening in the organisation today? So, no, great example from Disney. <laughs> well, before you take over here, I'm going to, I'm going to give you <laughs> a specific question right back at you. With, with regard to what you just said there about being curious and not just taking it as read with a subject matter expert, how does this relate to your role at Aviva now and, and where you're heading up technology and innovation for, for them? Um, so... In my role as uh, Head of Technology and Innovation for Learning at Aviva, um, the number one thing I always say about my job is that having the words technology and innovation in my job title are quite problematic mm. in the organisation and externally because people look at you and they think you do tech. Mm. So you can put my content on your learning management system <laughs> <laughs> and then I have to have a, a coaching conversation around what is their real problem and yeah. what, what do we actually really do and, and what we bring into the party. Um, innovation is another one people see that and they think you're just doing the cool and the sexy stuff mm. and as much as I love the cool and the sexy <laughs> stuff it's not always um, exactly what what we're doing uh, for me innovation is just creative problem solving yeah. that's all that it is so you're looking at a problem from different angles and trying to work out the angle that's going to help you to get to the solution that's going to give you the outcomes that you need um, so there are a couple of things that um, how I sort of relate that to my role um, so firstly, I've got an awesome team. They're absolutely amazing, like such an awesome bunch of people who surprise me every day with their ideas and their enthusiasm and their creativity and mm. what they can do with what we've got. It's brilliant. Um, so it does help if, you, if you're surrounded by people who can help you achieve stuff that you want to achieve. One thing that's been really transformative, I think, um, in terms of my role is when I came into Aviva, we were doing quite different work. So there was traditionally learning design happening there mm. was a lot of programs being delivered and over the last couple of years we've worked really really hard to get to a space where 
we're not just delivering training, but mm. we're delivering business results and business impact and business outcomes. And that's been the real shift. And the way that we've done that is by using uh, something called the 5DI methodology, yeah. which I think you've talked about on this podcast before um, with, with Nick Shackleton-Jones. Mm. Um, It'd be good for a reminder, if you wouldn't mind just talking us through, yeah, if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely, of course. Um, so, uh, I, so I used to work with Nick, mm. um, and Nick developed this methodology, which is all about sort of defining a problem before mm. you start the work. So the first step in 5DI is define. Um, you then need to go away and you need to do some research. So you need to discover what's going on in your organisation. And actually, funnily enough, we were doing this yesterday. So we spent some time with our customer facing teams in the work, um, not just asking them what their challenges were, but actually looking at what they were up against, because mm. sometimes what people say and what people do can be quite different. Yeah. So it's always good to validate or prove yourself wrong, I guess. Mm. Um the, the next stage in the 5DI is design. So we've got define, discover, define. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, sorry, design. So you're designing, um, you're coming up with ideas of stuff that might help people. Um, and in that space, there's only really two things that you can do. So if someone cares about something, you need to create a resource that helps them to do what they, they care about, what they're trying to do. Mm -hmm. And if someone doesn't care, you're creating an experience that's going to change their behaviour. Mm -hmm. So there's two things to do in that space. Once you've got a design, you're moving on to the next step, which is develop. So you're actually making the stuff, creating it. So that could be anything from you might design a conversation, you might create a relationship, you might make a video, make a podcast. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it could be any number of things. Um, and then the, the final D is deploy. So mm -hmm. you get it out to people. And that's not just if we build it, they will come. Yeah. That is looking at how you market it, how you fit that into the flow of work, how you get it out to people in a way that's meaningful and relevant to them. And the last stage, the I, is iterate. Mm. So you're never done. And I think that was the biggest shift for me in terms of sort of the work that we do in our role is that very often there can be this mentality that you do a learning project and you deliver it and it's live and it's done. Tick. Mm. Um, the real change came, I think, when we said, no, we're going to put it out there and then look at what the impact is and measure that and make it better based on that. So yeah. we'll come back and start all over again. Um, so it's a real shift in a way of working, but mm. it's the one tool that has just stuck with me over the last few years and it really works. I've yet to find a time when it hasn't worked for me. And what you're describing there is... It's a challenge of the the misconception. A lot of the time, I think you alluded to this, that innovation is uh, misunderstood in our profession as new and novel. And it's not new and novel. Yeah. As you go back, I love what you said there. It's creative problem solving, yeah. which brings that right down into the context, not just of the organisation, but of specific teams, of levels or cohorts of people who are just trying to get the right stuff done. Yeah. Completely. That's exactly it. For me, it's it's just understanding what people are up against yeah. and then helping them. <laughs> That's what we're here for at the end of the day, I think. Well, I, I wonder whether this has been shaped by your previous experience. Having uh, uh, looked you up on LinkedIn, I see that, that you've, you've come from a digital business and, and from comms roles previously. How did this experience prior to learning and development shape your views now within the profession? Love a bit of good LinkedIn stalking. <laughs> uh, but no, you're absolutely right. Um, my background is in um, primarily in digital marketing, but working in exactly the spaces that you've talked about. So 
Um, I worked for a fashion retailer. I've worked in digital banking, um, worked in advertising agency. And all of that is quite, in some ways, quite different to learning and development and in other ways, really, really similar. Mm. Um, so I remember when I made the shift, I was working in fashion. I was working for Monsoon Accessorise, literally my dream job, the reason that I moved to London. And um, Nick found me actually on LinkedIn and rang me up and said, do you want to come and work in L&D? And I was like, no, <laughs> I'm all right, thanks, I'm, I'm working in fashion. Um, but the more he talked to me about it, the more I could see that there was a real application for the kinds of things that I was doing in marketing, mm. but to really help people and make a difference and not just sell stuff, which I wasn't really sort of addressing my own personal purpose through mm. the work that I was doing in fashion. Um, through L&D, I think I found a real connection with that purpose around helping people's working lives feel better, mm. which sounds like a bit of a grand statement, but you've got to have a dream. <laughs> um, but yeah, for me, the, the marketing thing has been a huge influence mm. on what I do. And I know other colleagues who've had similar backgrounds have actually brought that to the table as well. So if you think about what marketing is um, at the end of the day, you're trying to influence and change someone's behavior mm. to make them do something. Yeah. So you're trying to change their mind about how they feel about a certain product so mm -hmm. that they will buy that product. And that's exactly what we're trying to do in learning and development. We're trying to change someone's behavior mm. to a business outcome and to an end. So the application is different, mm. but the methods and tools and technologies and ways of doing it are the same. Mm. You're still nudging someone's behavior in a direction to, to drive a business outcome. And I think that, uh, that in... In today's day and age with digital marketing, it's gone beyond. I mean, if we, we compare it to, to old days again, mine, mine is is limited understanding. But um, the old world of, of uh, marketing was uh, trying to be where other where your audience may lurk or may may find you. Where digital marketing is all about is much more precise. It's about being where those people are. But great digital marketing is about anticipating the requirement, the need as well, which I think is even closer to learning and development because it's not just about selling ideas and action. It's about anticipating what people need. And I think that timeliness has almost been, it's almost the last bastion of learning and development because learning and development teams have traditionally been quite small. So we deliver what we can when we can. You will attend when it's plausible. But I think that the the new digital technologies and approaches that you're describing which get closer to the point of work means that we can be there to anticipate what people need rather than sell them and change them for the sake of the organization am Com i on the right lines completely agree like you are bang on the money so i think that's something that we haven't cracked yet mm. in lnd but exactly what you just said is the direction of travel um so i think one of the things that I've seen closest to this is the idea of recommendation. Hmm. So recommendation in the flow of work, whether that's through a chatbot or whether that's through um, through a recommendations engine that's built into a platform. I think the the problem that we have is that we we do a bit of the old school marketing thing, actually. We build something and we, we try and get people to come to it, hmm. whereas actually we need to be taking stuff to people where they are yeah. and putting that in their flow of work and just getting them to... Um, just getting to them when it's important to them yeah. and understanding when those moments are and being predictive about that. And I mean, we have the data. Mm. We've, we've got the... The world's never been more sort of data savvy and, and more big brother, if I'm honest. Like, yeah. we know what our people are doing every moment of the day. We know what systems are 
they're using. We know um, where they are. We know what technology they're using. We're just not integrating into mm. it at the minute. But marketeers are. Yeah. Like, I, I swear stuff turns up at my door that I don't even realize that I bought from Amazon <laughs> because it's popped up in my Instagram feed. And before I know it, I've clicked on it and, and it's uh, it's been bought. But yeah. I think if we can shift in that direction a bit more so that we're integrated into the flow of someone's life, I think mm. that's where the magic happens. It's like uh, I, I was uh, Amazon searching for uh, for um, birthday presents. Um, like uh, Coming up, I always do a list for my wife so, she, so I don't get a load of rubbish. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm glad she doesn't listen. Um, um, but but within that, I was doing my, my research and then the next day, and I didn't put something on the list, but the next day I'm on a blog and right down the bottom, that was what I was Honestly, looking at. Yeah, so, that's so, it. Which yeah. was the reminder, which, you, you know, you go, that's really useful, actually, because yeah. then I will remember to put it on the shopping list. Exactly. But let's go down that rabbit warren a little bit. We're going to go a little it. bit off piece because I think that this is this is an important part because what we're talking about here is extending people's expectations, not just of learning and development, but the learning technologies as well. Yeah. Because um, with the work that, that I do, I say that uh, the... the um, that timeliness is the last bastion of learning and development. And what we do is in that discovery element um, in which we might be validating uh, or discovering with the client themselves on what friction they're experiencing in pursuit of their goals, we will then, once we've got the friction, we will ask them, when will it have been useful for you to have got that? So so if they can keenly Ah. access the, uh, the... um, the pain and the anxiety that they experience, then we will be able to map that or or, or make some kind of uh, educated assumption around when the next people through the door mm. will um, will require that. I, I know in Nick's work again, he's written he wrote years ago about um, about transitions being um, yes. the, the absolute key to this as well. So yeah, what we yeah. do is um, we get recent new starters to come and tell us their experience. And the way I see this is that. Um, that recent new starters have such similar experiences because they're not just assimilating into a new role. They're assimilating into the culture, the confines Mm. of a culture, and they butt up against the same cultural nuances as everybody else. And I always say to people, if you don't think that, that new starters, new managers, anybody new to a team, a role or a level... Um, are experiencing the same thing put them in a room together for five minutes ask them what they found difficult and then set a timer it will be seconds before somebody says i had that as well when when people go through transitions within the context of an organization things become predictable repeatable and then it's all about the timeliness so we actually we create campaigns so if we if you can anticipate when people have experienced that then you can have it on an automated workflow to surface what people require when they need it but then if you integrate with slack teams or whatever people use for work rather than trying to create a facility for learning then you really affect the work. That's where the change happens, isn't it? And yeah. I, I love the articulation of it, that it's a campaign, yeah. because I think that's exactly what learning is missing, mm. that that campaign mentality that you create a series of interventions that happen at a timely set of occurrences in someone's life mm. and you catch them right at the moment where they're they're having that struggle or they're having that challenge and you give them something that helps them with that. I think that's absolutely magic. Well, I wonder whether we don't get to that conversation because we don't talk about it in a marketing sense and in terms of uh, resources and conversations because everything's heavier. Everything's about the learning. So if you've got anything on a campaign, well, a lot, I, I personally think, this is just my opinion, we don't talk about campaigns in that regard because we're so busy talking about whether learning has been transferred or... Um, 
something about retention rather than action. I think very, very little do we actually talk about performance, productivity and capability. We talk about retention, um, the transfer and all about the learning. And you're absolutely right. And that that's the shift I think that we really need to make. So the conversation is the wrong one that we're having to start with. So if the conversation with the senior leadership team is about learning outcomes mm. or learning objectives, it's the wrong conversation to have. The conversation needs to be about what is going to change in the business as a result of us doing this. Mm. And then then you plot backwards, right, which interventions do we need to make and where are those pain points and where do they all fit in in, in someone's work? Um, so, yeah, I think you're absolutely bang on. Yeah. Um, and... Is this I, I, relating this back to my last question? If we come back out the rabbit warren, just just, <laughs> just for signposting purposes, and I asked you previously whether your digital business and comms roles had shaped your views of learning and development. I wonder whether those those experiences in those business and comms folks um, facing roles have given you a different perspective on L and D, and which you look and I don't know question. The conventions and the traditions, perhaps of of a uh, of the traditional approach to L and D, that make you think, well, maybe everybody should should just challenge that. Maybe, yeah. I think. I mean, I know there are a load of brilliant people doing awesome work in L and D who've got a pure L and D background, and they're challenging assumptions and mm. doing awesome things. So I don't think it's unique to marketing, but I do think that has had a massive influence on the way that I approach my work. And mm. um, one of the things I think it would be um, remiss of me not remiss me not to mention is the idea of data yeah so how can you use learning data or people data or organizational data to inform your practice and to mm. inform what you're doing and I think that's something that was the biggest shock for me the, when I came from marketing into L&D I'm used to sitting in an office with a dashboard there that tells you how many customers are on your website at any mm. one time which channel they've come from what they're buying where they are in the conversion funnel um, the impact that your last email com has had or your tweet or your Instagram post and having that data at my fingertips, meaning that I could react really quickly. So if it started raining across the UK, mm. as it is today, um, <laughs> you go promote umbrellas in your Instagram feed. It's like a no brainer. <laughs> yeah. You can you can do it. Um, and that's something that I found. Like I was a little bit adrift when I came into L&D. I was like, well, where's the data? Yeah. And people just didn't have it. Or if they did, it was completion data. Mm. Um, and I'm not just talking about learning data in terms of digital stuff, like how people progress through a website. I mean, organisational data. So when are people sick or absent? What's causing that? What's the root mm. cause analysis behind that? Thinking about the system conditions of the organisation, like what isn't helping people? Yeah. And how can we get hold of that? And then how can we plug that into what we're doing and, and really make those decisions data-led? Yeah. Um, which... We are getting there. We're, we're making inroads into it, but still a long way to come uh, to get to the marketing space, I think. Mm. And, and what you're describing there, I, I've uh, described as we use data almost as the autopsy. It's all it's all about was the money and time and attention that, that we, we spent or we took worth it in the end. It's almost as if you said, right, we know it's going to be a program and we know it's going to be e-learning. We've already chosen the providers and we've got a good idea of the content. We do it all and then we go, was it worth it? You know, did we get, you know, what were the training hours? Um, what impact, what was the satisfaction cause? It's all of that stuff. What you're talking about there are, is the stuff that informs our action in the first place. I always, I call that the critical points of failure in an yeah. organisation. If it's not critical, then don't, then 
then don't worry about it, yeah, really. Yeah. But what are the critical points of failure? And you find that in business information. It's about performance. It's about productivity. If it's future-focused, it's about capability uh, a lot of the time to, to do something different. But it does. It starts with data. And, of course, then with, your, with the discovery element, it continues with evidence so that you're yeah. not just basing that off of minimal. Because the alternative is what I've seen for too, uh, too often, and a lot of this is in learning needs analysis, is that um, decisions are, made, are based on minimal observation, requests by others, and those yeah. others being not the people who are, who are sought to be influenced, and by waiting. Like so, so who like whoever screams loudest or has the um, the the biggest authority in the organisation gets yeah yeah <laughs> it, it resonates it really does. <laughs> um, someone said to me this week actually, they said sometimes the way that people behave to L and D teams or with L and D teams is a bit like going to the doctor and saying I know what's wrong with me mm. and I know what medicine I need so just prescribe it to me yeah. and I listened to that and I thought wow that's exactly what happens people come come up to you and they go. Yeah, we know we need to raise awareness and we know that it needs to be e-learning mm-hmm. and it needs to be done on Monday. Here you go, get, crack on. And the L&D team sits there blinking sort of in the trail dust of the person mm. who's just been to see them thinking, how did that just happen? Um, and I think that's exactly it, isn't it? Mm. It's like, how do we shift away from that and get into the space where we are having those really good conversations about what's up? Like, what what's really wrong? Like, yeah. we can help you but we need to work out what the problem is first. Well, even worse, a lot of the time with learning needs analysis, it comes from the manager. So that's the equivalent of going to the doctors and saying, right, I've got some operations my team needs. John, <laughs> John needs a new leg. Um, <laughs> Sally needs her appendix out. And, you know, and all this time going, yep, I could do that, we could do oh, that, we could do days. that. So, so, <laughs> so it's not actually a lot of the time talking to the individuals. Anyway, look, we, we could go down that. We that could, we could. I want to talk about you. Now, <laughs> you've mentioned before that your mission is to make work feel more like real life by focusing on creating effortless, useful, beautiful experiences that solve real business problems. Could you elaborate on this, perhaps give us some examples? I sure can. Um, So I I think where this came from, the whole make work feel more like real life thing, is the fact that work doesn't feel like real life. Everybody has, like, you have a work phone voice, you have a, (laughs) a way of behaving, you wear something different, it's... you. Your whole world changes when you Mm. step through those doors or you switch that laptop on. And for me, that just feels so strange. Mm. Like, as someone who, like, rates authenticity as one of my core values, I feel like there's, like, a splitting of personality when Mm. you you go into work sometimes. And some organisations encourage that and some don't. Um, I'm glad to say that Aviva does encourage you to bring your whole self to work, which which is nice. I suppose the root of it came out of the frustration with systems Mm. at work. So... I would be at home and I would think I've got my iPhone or other smartphone um, and I can do whatever I need to do on that, Mm. literally anything. I can send money around the world. I can reach anybody that I need to reach. I can waste hours playing a game. I can learn something. I can find out how to solve a problem that I've got. And I would come into work and you have this really clunky experience Mm. of like 10 different systems that don't talk to each other and you have to remember passwords for all of them and it just feels really sort of exhausting yeah. to, to live in that world. Um, so I think when when I was first starting out in L&D, I was really focused on purely on digital and purely on tech mm. and that frustration came out of that. But actually, the more I get into the end-to-end learning experience piece and the blended piece and looking at how people feel about work in general, 
and not just looking at learning, but the whole sort of experience of being at work in a job. Mm. Um, I see it in more and more places that work doesn't feel like real life. People don't behave like people sometimes. Mm, yeah. And it's our job, I think, to change that. So that that's sort of where it comes from. Um, I think in terms of what I'm trying to do in, in terms of examples, um, I know you talk a lot about fit and learning into the flow of work, mm. which I think is a beautiful articulation of it. Um, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. So create stuff that helps people to do things that they are trying to do. Yeah. Um, if the organisation wants people to care about something they don't care about, for example, with compliance training, to create experiences that help them to care mm -hmm. or that create sort of a, an emotional pull that will that will help them to care. Um, I suppose one of the examples that I would say anyone can do that would help work to feel more like real life is look at how you behave currently with your own online life mm. so everyone's digital life is quite well curated you follow who you want to follow no one forces you to follow anyone um you choose what to watch on youtube you choose which ads to click on on facebook um curation something that we all do to sort of create our own little bubble that serves us and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing is probably conversation for another time <laughs> <laughs> um but I suppose what I'm trying to get to is how can we create like a curated life at work? Mm. So how can we create something where we pull in everything that's meaningful, important and useful to us into one place? Yeah. And not I'm not talking about a one-stop shop in terms of tech. I'm just talking about that overall experience. Yeah. How can we give our people the power to be able to do that for themselves? Does that make sense? Yes, that makes perfect sense. And what I'm hearing as well, especially with that last part about being meaningful and useful... It's not about filtering the entire internet for stuff that might or might not be useful to your audience. And this is why I get with, with sometimes when I read about curation in learning and development, that there is this role in learning and development where you're literally filtering the internet. But going back to what we were discussing before with the 5DI model, if you're solving real problems and there are tools, insights, information or know-how from outside, you might grab that add some context and um, something actionable afterwards in order to make that accessible or available to a particular group of people. But curation in that context is a huge opportunity, yeah. as is a lot of stuff. You know, you, you mentioned before that um, we might um, use our smartphones, but we might podcast. We might, we might do all of this other stuff. Is this stuff that you're incorporating into your work at Aviva? It is actually. And, and one of the things that we are doing at the moment is looking at how we can bring more of those external experiences that people have bringing them into the organisation. Mm. So two examples of things that we've done recently. Um, one of them is our wellbeing team did a really great piece of work around bringing headspace to everyone in our UK mm. business. So we know that well-being has a real impact on performance. There's tons of data behind that. And we have tons of data on our people and, and their sort of performance and how sickness and absence and well-being can impact that. Mm. Um, and there are studies that, that have shown that mindfulness can really help to improve well-being. So the well-being team actually brought Headspace in as an, in as an external tool and gave everyone in the UK access to it. And it's now in its second year of running. Mm. Um, I don't have the data to hand on how it's impacted performance. I, I should have brought it with me, but um, but I believe that it, it really has had a significant positive impact on that. Um, the other one that I, I would like to mention is that we've brought in an, an external book service called Blinkist. I don't yeah. know if you've come across it before. Um, so Blinkist is something that I was using in my personal life and just found it phenomenally useful. Mm. Like I don't have time to read 
business books. Like I would love to, and I've read some of them, but um, I don't have hours and hours to spend reading them. Sometimes I just want to get the core concepts down, and then yeah. if if they're useful and interesting, then I will go and and dig deeper. One of the one of the problems that we had in Aviva is that we found people were quite um, internally looking in terms of their inspiration and their thinking. Mm. And one of the challenges that we had from our leadership development perspectives last year was how do we drive a growth mindset in people? Mm. And one of the ways you can drive that growth mindset is to expose people to external thought leadership to Mm. help influence and change and shape their thinking. And so we brought Blinkist in as a trial. Um, It's been launched about two weeks, so it's still really in its infancy, but we've had about a thousand people um, sign up and, and use that so far. But I guess the reason why I picked those two examples um, is that in the past, L&D is tempted to reinvent the wheel mm. and to think we're going to create this for ourselves. We'll do our own internal headspace mm. and we'll record 100 hours of headspace uh, style meditations. But actually, the stuff is out there. And if your budgets allow, you can access it. I mean, mm. some of the stuff out there for it is free. So you don't need budget for it. And that's what I would say to people is we do what we can with what we have. Yeah. You sometimes don't have those crazy budgets where you can go out and buy like consumer grade tech and bring it into your organization. If you don't, use curation. Yeah. There's loads of stuff out there. YouTube is brilliant for it. Um for if you wanted to go down the headspace route, there's loads of meditation stuff on there. It's just about knowing what's important, knowing what's going to fix a problem and then going out and finding it. And to your point, sense-making. Yeah. Like it's our job not to filter the entire internet for someone's benefit, like you said, but just to make sense of it and put it in a context as to why this is going to help and why this is going to be useful. And running small experiments. If you've yes. got a limited number of licences and you're making that available to people who may already be interested, then you can just give that to them they can have a go and you can then talk with them about the impact that it's made case study it and make it available to people who will maybe on the precipice of interest but based based on what that has actually helped those people with which may not be results you know but it may it may just be with that well-being element yeah. but we do have the ability to just make those small bets that little bit of experimentation to see if we can move the needle and do do some good Completely. I think that experimentation is like super key. Mm. And there's there's so much you can do for free as an experiment in your organisation. Podcasting, for example. Mm. I know there there are scales of production and we're lucky enough to have this amazing (laughs) production space today. Um, But I know you mentioned to me when we were chatting before around your friend who records stuff on his iPhone. Yeah, that's right. Like that's something that pretty much everyone has in their pocket. So if you want to go down the route of creating a podcast for your organisation, just do it. Yeah. Nothing's to stop you from finding a quiet room and just pressing record and seeing what happens, mm. getting some feedback. And if it doesn't work, changing it. It's it's sort of getting over that hump that there's going to be a big launch or yeah. a big scale production and loads of budget and loads of sign off. Sometimes those little small bets, like you mentioned, mm. are the ones that really pay off. Again, it's the right medium to solve the right problem, mm. which brings me on to my next question around how you quantify the success of your work, because you've already described quite a disparate group of activities you've got the 5di model which is all about solving real problems based on data at the outset discovery and validation of what is actually being experienced and rather than say that you use x model um but which i don't expect you to say what are your your quantifiable measures of success or have been your measures of success in the past so i think with using the 5di model the if you take nothing else away from that take away the first bit which is define the problem in terms of business outcomes. Mm. So if someone comes to you and goes, 
we need a cybersecurity campaign. Ask them what they will measure, what will look different in the business as a result of us doing something. And once you understand what that is, then you can start to work out what it is that you need. Yeah. If that makes sense. That's your benchmark. Yeah, that's, that's, that's your what you ground zero. That is the problem that, as it totally. is defined now. Yeah, totally. So it might be things like um, one example might be we want to grow the number of customers that we have as a business. Yeah. Now, in my experience, this is not the kind of problem that comes to L and D because people think that's not a training problem. Yeah. That's a that's a customer ops problem or a resourcing problem or something completely unrelated. Um, but if someone came to you and said, we need to grow customer numbers, then you've got something, you've got a North Star that you can yeah. work to. You need that guiding light that you can then sort of think, that's the future, we're going to work back from there and work out a way to get there. Um, it might be sort of, to use the cybersecurity example again, it might be that we want to reduce the number of phishing incidents. Mm. And then quite quickly, you can start to get to a place where you can discover why the phishing incidents are happening today and then create stuff that's going to help to reduce them in future. Yeah. But I think without that, tangible business metric you can't measure anything and i think it will probably take a lot of conversations to get there so people will will say stuff like change in behavior yeah. or a shift in the culture and it's like brilliant but how are we going to measure that and keep asking the questions keep saying why how be curious like I, like we don't have the answers, I think mm. a lot of the times in terms of what the me what the metrics and the measures are going to be, and I don't necessarily think that's L and D's job to set those. I think they have to come from the business. Yeah. But the business isn't always used to having that conversation and being pushed on what those metrics should be. Um, so it's a it's a learning curve. I'm going to say it is, and it's one of those that um, I hear a lot that people challenge me on LinkedIn and say, but. Uh, L&D shouldn't be accountable for results. And I always say, no, they're not. The people who are in the roles are. But we should have some responsibility to find out what the real problems are and work with and for the client in order to move the needle. In the conversations I have with clients about induction, for example, um, because clients always seem to be wanting to fix induction and new manager um, training. Uh, so for, for induction, I, I ask, well, what, what problem are you solving? What are you trying to achieve with induction? And we always hit the same wall consistency and go no 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 um look beyond what what the delivery mechanism what you want the delivery to look like what's the problem and then to give an example is are people not passing probation are you losing people um at a short time after they've joined mm. are they not performing are they not ready what is the business metric that is that means that you've got induction in the first place yep. and then we move on from there but once you've got almost like a scorecard because there shouldn't a lot of the time there shouldn't just be one metric uh, you should think about it quite holistically then you've got an opportunity once you understand what the baseline is then everything that you do can be an experiment to move the needle in the right direction on something that the people actually care about because if they're leaving before they even get to probation there's something that they care about that's not being addressed or he's he's bad enough for them not to to stay but it but it starts with a business metric and something that's that's truly important to them totally agree no 100 percent. and we we saw i mean um induction is something that the team that i was part of at bp tackled so mm. my colleague shane um did a great job on induction at bp um around creating discover bp which is exactly what you'd you'd suggested that mm. it's tackling business problems about how people settle into the business what what can we do to make sure they don't fail their probation or they don't leave or that they know how to succeed in the organization and sort of working back from that i think mm. it 
for me, like the more you talk about it, the more I'm like, it's just such common sense. Yeah. <laughs> well, we we say that, but when I talk about this stuff online or 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 to um, to other professionals, a lot of the time I am presented with what they anticipate would be resistance within their organisation. Um, and I'm sure that you have as well. Whenever we challenge people's perspective of what L&D looks and feels like, so it doesn't look like school, it doesn't look like classrooms, and it might not look like e-learning, we get resistance from stakeholders, from those who are looking to be involved themselves, potentially attendees or uh, or employees. How have, have you experienced that level of resistance and how have you tackled that? I've definitely experienced that level of resistance mm. at a number of organisations over the years. Um, I don't think there's anyone trying to do learning innovation that hasn't, right? Mm, it's yes, a, right. It's a definitely a, an age-old problem. Um, I think for me, there's something in the contracting up mm. front. So how you contract with your stakeholders um, in terms of what you are here for. And that was something that I didn't clock straight away, actually. I had a really sort of fixed idea of this is what I'm here for, this is the model we use, it works, we've seen it, it's proven, these are the results we'll get out of the back of it and just expected people to get that. But what I perhaps didn't pay enough attention to and a big learning point for me was most people have those ideas that you just said about what, what learning is. Yeah. So their only experience of learning in some cases is sitting in a classroom at school or doing compliance training when they join an organisation and to shift someone's mindset away from that is quite hard and I was finding that I was coming up a against quite a bit of friction mm. um, in pretty much every L&D every job I've had um, in that you would have the conversation with the, let's call them the client, the stakeholder, mm. and they would have a preconception of, I'm, I'm coming to you, here's my material, here's my 45-page PowerPoint document, can you make it pretty and clickable and uh, and pop it on your LMS and mm. jobs are good in? <laughs> and there's they're sort of a real surprise mm. when you actually say... Um, okay, so what are we going to drive for here? Or what, what are the business outcomes? Or why do you think we need to do that? And what I learned from that is that people aren't necessarily used to being consulted with by mm. L&D. They're used to going back again to the order taker stuff. They're used to coming in, putting in, in their order and leaving with a nice package or a nice course that they can go tell their manager that they've done. Solutioneering. That, yeah. That's what I say. On the positive side, you know, they might think, well, I'm going to help solution solutioneer yeah. and I'm going to tell you what I want. Yeah, totally. And do you know what? It doesn't come from a bad place. No. Like, I have brilliant stakeholders in our organisation that I love and that are super smart and have great ideas. And they come to you with an idea of um, what they think should happen. And what I've found works really well after I've gone through my sort of learning curve period is collaborating and partnering and yeah. really just making that person feel like we're doing this together. We're, mm. we're co-creating. So it's not designed by committee, but it's both working together to really understand the problem and then creating stuff that's going to help. But I think that resistance I've found has been sort of endemic mm. throughout pretty much every project I've ever worked on. And the thing that I've found that has really worked has been not to rubbish the old way of doing things or yeah. not to rubbish assumptions, but instead to go together on that journey to where can you get to that's going to actually help people do stuff. Mm. And also not being afraid to sort of take incremental little movements of the dial like you mentioned mm. so you're not going to change the world overnight as much as we'd love to you're going to have to concede some things yeah. and know when to sort of pick your battles and which bits are worth fighting for and what are you gonna 
what you're going to actually push on and stay firm on and say no to or um what are you going to say actually let's let's compromise on that one and i think it is it is about that partnering yeah. i think so we come to the end of the uh, the podcast Gemma and if the listener is inspired by what you're saying and they themselves want to create effortless useful beautiful experiences that solve real business problems where should they start where should they start um Number one, I've said it a thousand times, um, speak to the people that you're working with them for. So get out into the work. Don't just ask them what they want. That's the worst thing we could do. But just really spend time with them. Sit next to them, see what challenges they face in their day-to-day job Mm -hmm. and then create stuff that can help them. I think there's something about shifting the tone around what L&D is for in organisations as well. So going away and having conversations with your stakeholders about being more partnering and being more consulting in terms of what you're doing and not just sort of taking the order. Um, I think the other thing is looking outside. So one of the things that I think everybody could get better at in, in sort of my experience of, of L&D and not just L&D but perhaps any industry is looking outside of your own industry. Mm-hmm. So look at what's going on in marketing or film or fashion or art and bring stuff back into the to the industry based on what you see is happening elsewhere. Like yeah. we're never going to change stuff if we keep looking in on what we've always done. Um, and I think another thing, if you're if you're interested in some of the stuff that I've talked about today, um, there is how people learn, which is Nick's book, Nick Shackleton Jones' book. That's yeah. a great place to start if you're into this kind of approach. Um, design thinking is also something else that's worth looking into. So there are countless books written about design thinking there's a really great one called designing your life which isn't about learning at all mm-hmm. um but a really great place to start if you're starting to think about applying some of the principles that i've mentioned brilliant and you're active on social media yourself so if people want to follow your work how do they do that i sure am maybe a little bit too active um <laughs> i am at gem sent gem on twitter and i blog occasionally on linkedin at linkedin.com forward slash Gemma critchley wonderful we'll put links to your social media uh, are in the show notes as well as the books that you've mentioned there. Gemma, thank you very much for being a guest on the Learning and Development podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been awesome. Cheers. There's nothing quite like hearing from somebody who is driving innovation within organisations and perhaps more importantly, getting real results. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a rating on your podcast app of choice. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, perhaps to suggest topics you'd like to hear discussed, You can tweet me at David in Learning, connect on LinkedIn or Facebook, for which you'll find the links in the show notes. Goodbye for now.